Hello and welcome to this week's edition of SBC This Week, a roundup of news and views from around the Southern Baptist Convention. SBC This Week is hosted by Amy Whitfield and Jonathan Howe. Hey Jonathan, how's it going? Going well. Been a good week. Been a, uh, a nice week to be back. You know, it's end of October, which is crazy. This year has really yeah. flown by. We've been doing this for six months now. You realize that? That's pretty nuts. About to start a our six months. We'll be starting our six month next month. A lot has happened in six months. It has. It has. And a lot happened this week. The big news this week, we talked about it last week, going into this week, uh, the IMB live stream. Dr. Platt uh, addressed a lot of questions, many of which had been covered before. The one, though, uh, I, I thought that stood out, it was right at the end of the episode, and we're going to play some audio here and, and let you hear his, his answer, uh, but it was about the Global Cities Initiative. So here's Dr. David Platt talking about that Global Cities Initiative. Okay, talk about the Global Cities Initiative. Why those cities? What's the long-term plan? Long answer, please. Okay, I don't think I have time for a long answer, but... Uh, so Global Cities Initiative, uh, oh, let me hit this real quick. Uh, and this is a pilot project we're working on in IMB right now. So it's not like, so when you hear initiative, don't think, okay, big plan, everybody's jumping in. Um, but I, I've mentioned, I've talked about uh, professionals uh, and students and retirees, how to integrate them into the church planning task overseas. Um, right now, our systems and structures aren't really set up to integrate them. I mean, that, that's happening in different places, but it's not intentionally integrated into everything we're doing. So we've taken uh, five cities uh, right now, London, Dubai, Mumbai, Kuala Lumpur, and Shanghai. And we've said in those cities, uh, we want to just, we want to pilot, test some things out where we integrate in. So if you know of professionals who are working there or students who are studying there or retirees who want to move there uh, to one of those cities and be an intentional part of the spread of the gospel, that's, that's what this is about, uh, to unreached peoples. And so we're trying to work through the processes uh, that are needed to enable that to happen. What we don't want to do is kind of launch this big picture and then figure out if it really works and how to do it. What we want to do is test it out on a small level. That's the whole purpose of a pilot. Test it out and learn some things along the way. If we learn, okay, this is not really effective for this reason or that reason, then we, we adjust our strategy. Or if we learn, hey, this is really effective, then we can broaden that out. And so we're, we're doing that right now. It's kind of happening on a small scale right now uh, with a view toward if the Lord blesses it, then that expands, if, if, but he may redirect in some way. So that's what we want to do just as we move forward as the IMB. We want to think through, okay, what are all the avenues God's opened up for the spread of the gospel among the nations? And let's begin to walk through those different doors and see how the Spirit leads in a way that hopefully we can better partner with churches to empower limitless missionary teams who are making disciples, multiplying churches among unreached peoples and places for the glory of God. That's the sentence that sums up everything we want to do. All right. So, yeah, that's a fascinating uh, thing to, to come out. Jonathan, talk, break this down for us a little bit. I guess it's a little bit patterned after the Sin Cities approach that NAM is using. You kind of, we talked about that a little bit off air before we started. Uh, kind of a global cities that they're looking at. And, you know, Global Cities Initiative, he's looking at London, Mumbai, Dubai, Kuala Lumpur, and Shanghai as basically mobilization points around the world that IMB can connect. It sounds like what they can do is connect with people who are either already working there, going to study there, already studying there, um, just in the area, who want to be a part of what they're doing on a global scale and make them, while they're there for other reasons, whether that be studying abroad, whether it be uh, their job or whatever it may be that they're there in that area for, uh, but to come alongside what IMB is doing in those cities and 
and you know reach the people in that area with the gospel. Yeah, and I mean, of course, the first thought I had was, like you just said, it it sounds like sin cities, but obviously it's a yeah. little bit different. A little bit and, different, not just planting churches in those cities, but you know, engaging right. people who are already there. Right, and uh, I mean, you can look at that list and you see you see the point completely. These yeah. are some of the major major cities around the world. Obviously, there are a ton of people there. There are a ton of Americans there. Mm-hmm. Um, doing different things. And so y- you have to recognize those are going to be very strategic mobilization points. Yes. And uh, I- I'm trying to figure out how I can lead a team to London. Have you been to London before? No, I haven't. I haven't, but I'm a big English Premier League soccer fan. So I, I went to London in high school for, I was just there a couple of days, but I'm going to be going back in July for like 10 days. Oh my so. word. I'm jealous. Some news from Ronnie Floyd and a event that the Southern Baptist will be hosting down in Mississippi. Uh, this one comes to us uh, via Baptist Press, but really talking about a national conversation on race in America hosted by the National Baptist Convention uh, that Dr. Floyd will be part of. And actually, a lot of Southern Baptists will be a part of this in Jackson. Yeah, this is very interesting. It's national conversation on race in America. Obviously, Mississippi is certainly a place to have that. There are a ton in civil rights history in particular uh, took place in Mississippi. So just even the location speaks something. Um, and so Dr. Floyd, Jerry Young, who is president of the National Baptist Convention, they're going to kind of stand together. And uh, it's, it's at this Mission Mississippi's annual celebration at the Jackson Convention Complex. So uh, kind of a big thing. Hey, speaking on this particular uh, topic of racial reconciliation, did you see it all? And this just occurred to me. So we hadn't talked about this off uh, offline at all. The article about um, Eric Hankins, pastor of First Baptist yes. Church in Oxford, Mississippi, that. that hit one of my favorite magazines, actually, The Economist. Yes, I did. I saw the tweet about that the other day. I was, I think, I was with Dr. Rayner whenever that came across. And uh, I saw it and mentioned it to him and read a few bars out of it to him. Uh, but we were, we were both really impressed that that story had come out and, and, and the widespread media attention that it got. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, when, you know, The Economist is, is such a widely read magazine, really kind of in the Western world and in, in Europe and, and other places, obviously here. And uh, so I, I thought that was really just neat for that to show up. It, it, very neat. And, and, while he will not be involved in this event in Mississippi, uh, he is a pastor in Oxford, Mississippi, but he won't be involved in it. There are a host of other Southern Baptist pastors, uh, not just Dr. Floyd, but uh, Marshall Blaylock, Felix Cabrera, Timmy Chavis, Steve Gaines, Gene Henderson, Paul Kim, Ed Litton, Ted Trailer, A.B. Vines, and Kay Marshall Williams. I, I know uh, Ed Litton's wife was with you today at uh, Southeastern. She was on campus. Yes, she was. We uh, had the... Uh, Timothy Barnabas Exchange. Uh, so it was something that came out of the Timothy Barnabas conferences that Johnny Hunt, a uh, pastor of First Baptist Woodstock, he and his wife Janet will host these conferences for pastors and their wives, retreats. Kathy Litton participates in a lot of those. And they did one specifically targeted at uh, ministry students. And it was all day today, canceled classes, um, went basically started at 10, went to 3. It was fantastic. Yeah, I saw a lot of tweets about that. Uh, Lizette Beard's in town, I know, uh, for her doctoral 
dissertation and it's her birthday. So happy birthday, Lizette. We're, we're recording this on her birthday. Um, happy birthday, Lizette. Yes, we had a party entire, tonight. Looked like an entire gym saying happy birthday to her uh, today. I, I saw I'm, that. I'm going to have to link to that now since I mentioned it. Yes, you are. Yes, yes. you are. I Put believe they did. Up. I wasn't actually in there. They We were eating in two different places. And yeah, I, was I saw the tweets about that as well. <laughs> Speaking of tweets, yes. best tweet of the day came from Becca Stone King. I'm going to uh, link to that tweet as well. You have to read that one because it's hard to understand if you're not reading it. But um, that's the tweet of the week for me. Uh, anyway, okay. Yeah. Back to the yes. news. Back to the news. All right. Enough about the Southeastern events today. All right. Uh, yes. Staying in Mississippi. Uh, Association Boots Church for Affirming Gays, a cooperative Baptist fellowship church in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, where I went to college is uh has been booted out of the pine belt baptist association for being affirming of the homosexual lifestyle yeah i mean obviously this the the decision is not necessarily a surprise uh, to us i think what we're going to start seeing though is a lot of this same story particularly in local associations Mm -hmm. i think this is where local associations are going to start to break down somewhat yep um this is the second one we've seen in, in two weeks yeah, and and local associations, they were already struggling. I mean, one that we were a part of in Virginia, just due to finances, mm-hmm. really kind of hit some hard times. But I, I think this is this is going to start to be the dividing line because that's the one place where there were churches who had kind of gone uh, with the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship yes. and SBC churches might still at least meet together once yeah. a quarter or the, something the like that. The fellowship limitations in the association world were a lot wider right, than they were right. on the national scale and even right. on the state scale. But this is this is something uh, new. It's a really clear dividing line, and I think we're going to continue to see this. Yeah, and the church in question is University Baptist Church, which is literally, I looked on a map, and this, this says a lot, I guess, about me or about the church, but it was a, literally about a quarter of a mile from my dorm at Southern Miss. I'd never heard of the church, didn't even know it was there. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know what that says about them or it says about me. I don't, I'm not quite sure, but I uh, didn't really know anything about the church. And it was literally a quarter of a mile from the campus at Southern Miss. I was involved at, in a couple other churches in that uh, area, uh, First Baptist and Temple Baptist down there in Hattiesburg mm-hmm. while I was there. Um, I actually met my wife at Temple Baptist. Uh, wow. So well, that's very interesting. Anyway. So yeah, I think you're right, Amy, about us seeing more of those in the future. We're still kind of waiting to hear an outcome of the one we mentioned last week, which is in Tennessee. Uh, right. And speaking of Tennessee, the Tennessee Baptist Convention has bought some yes. new land for its new headquarters. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, you know, I have wondered for a while where they would end up, and I know they were in some temporary mm-hmm. headquarters in, it was a hospital, right? Isn't that where they were? Yes, LifePoint Health Hospital Support yes. Center in Brentwood. Yes. Uh, so they had sold their building they'd had for so many years. Yeah, at, right there uh, on Maryland Way. Yep, Maryland Farms area, uh, right near where I would go to the grocery store sometimes oh, in okay. Fresh Market. Uh, yeah. But um, they had left there, and so now they're going to be not actually not that far, just down uh, kind of off. 65. Yeah, it'll still be in that Franklin area on Interstate 65 South uh, in a business development that's going on down there. But the Tennessee Baptist Convention sold their building back in 2013. You, you mentioned that they'd been renting out that space at LifePoint Health 
Hospital Support Center there in Brentwood. Uh, they sold the building for $8.75 million, bought this new piece of property for $1.15 million, and they're going to construct their new place. Probably will buy, end up breaking even or somewhere around there. They don't mention uh, construction costs, but just knowing what it takes to build buildings these days, probably wind up breaking even, but they will save a lot of money each year on operations costs for the building uh, just sure. for part of it because they've downsized from 88,000 square feet because they had a big conference center on there and the old building uh, down to 32,000 square feet just for office type space. So uh, they'll be a lot leaner with this new space that they'll have down in Franklin. Yeah. Congrats to the TBC. Uh, so, all right. And speaking of state conventions, moving in, as we have said for the last few weeks, we're dealing with meetings. The Dakota Baptist Convention met, and uh, one of the big things that came out of their annual meeting is that they increased their giving to cooperative program uh, by one half percent for 2016. So that brings brings their amount up to 23. Uh, the executive director did say that their eventual aim is to reach 50%, um, but they're they're at 23 right now. Their goal is to get to 27 by 2020. So I'm not sure what their long-term goal is for when to, they will get to 50. They do say they want to. Yeah, and the biggest issue up in the Dakotas, and it's similar to what we saw last week in Nebraska, Kansas, is the, the funds – available in those states. I mean, to have a sufficient state convention, um, they, they kind of have to take a little bit more than 50 right now. Uh, they're, right. they're one of those pioneer or frontier states, uh, yeah. not one of the southern states with the big cooperative program giving uh, that, that can yeah, they can move a little bit quicker to that 50%. I mean, they've only got a $457,000 budget. So Yeah, it, so you know. so making a move like that is, is going to, you're almost going to say, well, can you even have a state convention yes, exactly. getting that quickly? Yes, right. and and I mean they get uh, more than a half a million dollars from NAM each year in grants, uh, four hundred and forty thousand for church planning, eighty seven thousand for evangelism in the state. So uh, their their grant money from NAM is even more than their actual budget and receipts from cooperative program. They only get three hundred and twenty five thousand dollars a year from cooperative program gifts from churches in the states, and there's only something like eighty churches in the the convention anyway. So uh, we've got local associations here in the South that have more churches have more than that. Yep. than their entire state convention in two states. Yep. So uh, 88 churches to be exact, 26 in North Dakota, 62 in South Dakota. Speaking of states as well, uh, one more big news uh, item came out last Friday after we had dropped last Friday's podcast, but uh, the SBTC, the Texas, uh, the conservative te- convention, I guess you could call it in Texas, Uh, is looking to earmark $1 million to facilitate returning missionaries as church planners or church revitalizers in the convention's Reach Houston initiative. Yeah, that's it's been an interesting time to see how this situation with the IMB, uh, how people would respond to it in all all kinds of ways as far as helping folks transition. And this uh, this was a really interesting one. Yeah, so they're looking at Houston, which is the third largest city in America and one of the most diverse cities in the United States as well. I used to live there, and uh, it's got pockets of uh, different ethnicities all over this the city, not just Hispanic nations and, and things like that, but you have Koreans, a lot of Eastern Asians there, uh, and even some from the Middle East and Africa. There's a huge African population in uh, Houston, mainly because of the oil industry. A lot of Nigerian families in Houston, especially out there on the west side of Houston. So 
this is, uh, you know, a possibility for them to partner with the workforce coming back from IMB. There's still a lot of details, I guess, to be worked out in this. There wasn't a lot of details in the release, and it's it's really just a proposal right now. It has to be approved by the full board at the November 11th fall meeting. The administrative committee is bringing this proposal to them. Uh, the money would come out of their reserve funds, uh, but so there's there's not a whole lot of details in the, the release, but uh, it's it's kind of neat to see how a state convention is going. Hey, we've got a group of people that need to be reached. We've got a whole workforce coming back that might be able to help us reach them. Right. How can we partner with them and help them in, and help us engage this global city that we have right here in our state? Right. It's a very just creative way to address this situation and say, how can we, uh, how can we use this well? Next up is something we talked about a couple of weeks ago. We, we touched on this earlier. It's the dedication of the Spurgeon Library. We mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. The official release came out now uh, this past week, and also Midwestern in that release uh, announced their bump in enrollment to an all-time high of 1,702 students. We've talked the last three weeks now about the, the increases at the seminaries for enrollment. Uh, I've seen the Spurgeon Library. Amy, do you have any plans to be out in Kansas City at any time? At this stage, we don't have any plans to be up that way, but I'm sure if we are, we'll we'll make a stop because that seems to be the the place everyone checks out is the Spurgeon Library. Uh, but it looks, the, the pictures are, are beautiful. Yeah, it is absolutely amazing. Uh, Christian George, Jason Allen, you've done a great job with that. So congratulations on that ribbon cutting. They actually had some of uh, Spurgeon's descendants there. Really? Yeah, uh, they had Hillary Spurgeon, the wife of the late great-grandson David, as well as the great-great-grandchildren of Richard Spurgeon and Susanna Spurgeon Cochran. So uh, descendants of Charles Spurgeon there. They did a, a podcast with them. I saw a picture that Christian George or somebody at Midwestern had tweeted out. Uh, but they did a podcast with them, got some audio, and they were there for the dedication of their ancestor, the Prince of Preachers, C.H. Spurgeon, memorialized with this uh this library with his yeah. works well one you know one day we may uh, get a chance to check it out it's the the pictures are really beautiful so i can't wait for the whitfield library on the campus <laughs> of southeastern yes but that e in the middle will show everyone it's not up <laughs> there is a whitfield library george it's just much of one. yeah george whitfield a little bit different yes. no relation yes. right that, that's correct. In lieu of an interview this week, we had three pieces of research come from Lifeway Research. Uh, so we're going to do kind of a research spotlight at this point in the, the podcast. Uh, the three pieces of research, one on divorce, one on uh, pastor's views of Islam, and another one on Halloween. Halloween. So the day we're releasing this is the 30th of October, tomorrow, Halloween. So i uh, got some interesting research coming on that. So we'll start at the divorce research that came out earlier this week. It, it basically is studying exactly how couples who are in church, who are in churches, um, how they handle it. So that was, uh, that was what they sort of found. As they said, churchgoers who are often kind of on the brink of separating will, will stay quiet at church. And they, the big problem is that couples may be unwilling to discuss the difficulty that they are happy yeah. uh, that they are having. Yeah, three out of ten when asked who do couples seek for help with marital problems among the church growers who were divorced, only half sought counsel from the lead pastor. Next up, three no one. out of ten didn't seek any counsel. Yeah, no, or no one at church. No one at church. So, yeah, yeah. So 
they may have gone to a, a, a marriage counselor or friends or something like that, but right. no one at church. Yes. So three out of every 10 couples right. sought no one at church uh, to try to help with their marriage. Yes. Now, you know, we need to remember one of the, the things that gets talked about a lot, and Ed Stetzer actually addresses this a lot, is that one of the most misquoted statistics is the one that says that the divorce rate in the church among, yeah. yeah the divorce rate in the church is a, is the same as outside totally and, false yeah totally false and he clarifies that over and over one of the worst bad stats out there um, however we know um, uh, even the numbers that are there and just I'm sure you know a ton of people it's still it's too uh, high obviously yeah it's still really too yeah. high and if you want to find out more about that that uh, faulty stat, Shanti Feldham's book that just came out last year, that's the one to go check out. She, she just yeah. destroys that, that entire stat. It, it's still, this tells us something about how people are not necessarily plugged in uh, with their church about kind of one of the biggest problems that they could be having. It, it would be in problems with their marriage. Yes, and one of the, the other questions that they asked was, is church a safe place to talk about marital difficulties? When they asked the pastors, they got a 94% agreeal rate. When they asked the couples who had divorced, 77%. So there's a, about a 20-point swing, one out of five mm -hmm. difference there, a 20% swing on whether or not it's a safe place to talk. So pastors think it is, but the couples who don't or who divorce don't. And even the ones who, well, yeah, who stay married even, are right even, there with them at 79%. Right, right, even happily married at 79% don't feel like it's a safe place to talk about marital difficulties. So what, what that tells us since pastors say it yeah. is, it's not as safe um, as you think pastors. We, right. And that pastors, that part of the leadership is not in just saying, but y you have a culture. And I think, I think some of it is just the fact that we want so much to project that things are fine and so we don't feel like we can safely go in around other people who we think are all fine and let on the struggles in our life. That's just a very hard thing to do. Um, and so it just doesn't feel as safe as perhaps it is, as perhaps the pastor, you know. Well, I think that perception value goes to this next question even more. What marriage support services does your church offer? When the pastors said, were asked that question, they overwhelmingly said, we offer marital counseling, we offer marital resources, we offer referrals to professional counseling, we, we preach sermons several times a year about marriage, marriage right. and we even offer seminars or short, short, we even offer seminars or short-term classes on marriage topics. But whenever yes. you start asking, you know, does your church offer this to people who were divorced, most of these are at least less than half of what the pastors are saying that they are. Right, right. So like... And are they what not it, seeing it? Is it a perception thing? Are they not looking for it? Do they not realize it? Are yeah. we not communicating it well? What interested me in that was that churchgoers who divorce, they only 17% of them said sermons that specifically address marriage or seminars or short-term classes on marriage topics. I mean, that seems to me to just be a real cut and dried answer. You know, do, do they offer seminars? It's in the bulletin. There it is. I mean, were there sermons preached on it? And, but pastors were saying like at a 68% rate, 51% rate, and these people at like 16 and 17% rate. So somewhere the communication is just not. Yeah, because know. the couples that are still happily married, 
they're twice as likely, I guess, to hear or to realize that there are seminars or short-term marriage classes because they're at 36% to the 16% or 38%. These numbers are really small. Um, But, you know, it's, it's amazing the difference in what happily married couples are hearing, I guess, and seeing and those who aren't and, you know, pastors who are communicating it, hopefully. Uh, the the difference there is is dramatic. Yeah. So you can find out more about that research at lifewayresearch.com. Next up is Pastors Grow More Polarized on Islam. This one came out last Friday after we had uh, released last week's pod. So now we're covering it this week. Uh, this one, not too surprising, but there's some no. big differences here. Yeah. So basically uh, just the the surveys with Protestant pastors and it shows that um, a growing number are really labeling. They're saying that the Muslim faith is violent, and then the minority um, is, is well, I don't know. I need to do this again. Yeah, this was uh, a new survey. It actually, re- it actually surveyed Americans and Protestant pastors. Yeah. Uh, but it demonstrated something that Protestant pastors are becoming more and more polarized about Islam. Um, many, many more are labeling it violent, dangerous, um, and then very, very clear minority saying that, that it is spiritually good. Yeah, and the shift has come from five years ago. This was done, the same research was done in 2010, just among Protestant pastors. So we don't have the all-American votes for uh, the 2010 survey, but we do have Protestant pastors in 2010 and 2015. And the shift, like you mentioned, every one of these has increased except for the none of these. Yeah, well, all the way around, it's just a really interesting study to kind of see how this is moving and shifting all the time with yeah. uh, current events. And and one current event could change this entire perspective. And right. That, that's kind of the how this has gone now ever since September 11th. In the wake of that, uh, one thing can change this entire amount of research. So finally, that brings us to Halloween Draws, Focus of New Study. Um, and this, I think, is another shift, or at least it, it feels like a shift to me. 59% of all Americans feel like Halloween is all in good fun. 21% 21% of Americans uh, try to avoid Halloween completely. Um, That's, that that would, is really interesting. That really surprised me. Uh, I, it still has kind of a pagan stigmatism based on the next question. Uh, they try to avoid the pagan elements, 14%. And then there's 6% that's unsure. So there seems to be a, a higher amount of um, people being you know, willing to celebrate Halloween, it seems to me, than there was in the past. Yeah, I think so. And I, one thing I've really learned over the years is that it, it always seems to depend kind of on where you live, yeah. how how the context you're in uh, handles it. In this town, in our town in Wake Forest, um, it is a big thing for the town and mm. everyone comes out on Main Street. Uh, we have a, a faculty member at Southeastern, George Robinson, who lives on Main Street and he sits out uh, in his driveway. His wife has refreshments and things, and he'll sit out there with uh, tracks, and he gives that out with candy, and he gives out over 500 wow. tracks every year. But he gives uh, out candy too. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. And um, and 
they they have coffee for the parents because the entire town comes out and he says this is the night that i see more people coming into my home and talking you know standing in my driveway than any other time and so he sees it as a tremendous way to know his neighbors we've been in different you know different towns different settings uh so i've just kind of learned it depends on where you are yeah Uh, but even in this research it depends on where you are the people who say they try to avoid halloween completely Southerners, right. 27%. The West, 19%. Midwest, 18%. Northeast, 12%. Yeah. So Very the Bible Belt still holding strong against Halloween. Yeah. And by the way, uh, kudos to Lifeway Research for the graphics on that uh, presentation, putting them in uh, pumpkins. <laughs> they should have carved them. That would have been even better. Oh, very, very, very nice. That'd have been too labor intensive, though. Yeah, that would have been like that would have meant like Lizette beard with a a knife and a pumpkin. Well, the little one for six percent for not sure that would have been a lot tougher to yeah, that's true. Show a car pumpkin. All right, so that brings us to what's becoming my favorite part of the week this week in SBC history. Amy, blow our minds. Well, we were talking about Midwestern uh, a few minutes ago, and uh, looking at this one, really, there's only one place I could go with this week. You have to always talk about, you talk about some positive times. Certainly, we've had some tougher times. Uh, This uh, week in 1962 uh, was when the trustees of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary voted 24 to 5 uh, to dismiss Professor Ralph Elliott. Oh, uh, for yeah, I know that name. Yes, uh, they not uh, for it was actually for insubordination because they requested that he would not uh, republish his book, The Message of Genesis, uh, which was published by Broadman Press. Yeah, thanks for bringing us into that. Yes, uh, you guys are part of it because Broadman Press offered the republication rights to Elliot. Uh, the uh, board of trustees, they had asked him to not offer it. He refused the request, and so they voted to release him. Um, that is kind of known as the Elliott controversy. It was a huge uh, sort of beginning piece in the story of the conservative resurgence, really when it was beginning to gather steam, uh, because in that book, he had a sort of the view of um, a historical criticism yeah. view, which called into question particularly the first 11 chapters yeah. of Genesis. Allegorical uh, versus historical. Yes. The first 11 chapters. Yep. Right. Um, also, this this whole thing kind of led into the next year when the 1963 Baptist Faith and Message was adopted. That uh-huh. was kind of part of that process. But it was a piece that, you know, Eventually, you know, one of those spots that set things in motion uh, for some really crucial meetings that led to a strategy that brings us to where we are today. Yes. I I was going to ask if you you think, like, without the Elliott controversy, would there have been a conservative resurgence? Man, that's a tough question. Not not in Um, its form, maybe, but still possible. uh, Yeah. I mean, it was everywhere. And and when you're kind of reading up on this, uh, there are places where... You know, I think Elliot even said, and, and other folks, this is what we're all teaching. So I, I think what um, Judge Paul Pressler started seeing and hearing and, and going around and learning was that this is happening in 
all the seminaries. And obviously the next controversy happened in the, the book that was on Exodus that was by Roy Honeycutt. So if this hadn't happened, you know, would we still be maybe cause you know, something else would have come up. Having said that this was a big one. It was a, a huge one. As I said, it's known as the Elliot controversy. Uh, I'm yeah, anytime sharing- you have your name associated with a controversy, it's a big deal. Yes, yes. So uh, in the notes, we're going to share the link to uh, the Baptist Press article when he was dismissed, as well as a piece that Dr. Jason Allen wrote uh, a few years ago um, when it kind of reached the 50-year mark of the Baptist Faith and Message, the 63 Baptist Faith and Message, and talking about the Elliott controversy, which is appropriate to have that since the current president of Midwestern is writing on it. But you, you can track a little bit more of what happened, but huge piece in our history, especially that brings us uh, where we are today because it was a major catalyst uh, for the conservative resurgence. And it all started this week in SBC history. Very cool. Thanks for that, Amy. Uh, moving on to our resources of the week. I'm going to stick with the Midwestern theme and it's, it's not going to be the Genesis book, by the way. That, um, that's good. That's good. It's going to be because the you, you guys do not publish that anymore. No, no, no. And I would not recommend that either. Correct. Um, because I believe in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Yes. Okay, yes. so I'll go with The Story of Everything by Jared Wilson, who is on staff at Midwestern, runs the For the Church website there. Jared is possibly my favorite author. I haven't really sat down and, and ranked favorite authors yet. Um, but if I had to start, he would be right there at the top. Uh, so... Jared is one of the best writers that I read, and his new book, The Story of Everything, is a must. Uh, It's um, just fantastic. So uh, the cover art is just over the top. Love the cover. It's kind of a paper mache-ish kind of thing. I don't even know what what to call it, Um, but very, very cool cover. And uh, pick it up. It's from Crossway, uh, just released this week, and uh, The Story of Everything by Jared Wilson. Very cool. Um, I'm going to actually throw in there, I won't go into great detail because I already talked about it some before, uh, but the Timothy Barnabas um, retreats that uh, Pastor Johnny Hunt uh, does that's really just pouring into pastors and their wives. And uh, they came and did, did this today. It was a great experience. They continue to have other retreats in other places, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, Atlanta, Gatlinburg, Palm Springs, and Branson next yes. year that you love. That you Branson, love, so. love Branson. Yeah, so great, great ministry that they do. All right, well, next week at Southeastern, what y'all got going next week? Anything big coming up? Uh, we have the Page Lectures next week. and uh, Dr. Frank Russell or Patterson? <laughs> I don't know. I'll have to tell you next week who that's named after. Um, but they are called the Page Lectures, and Dr. Russell Moore will be uh, with us for those. Very uh, cool. So that's kind of the major thing that's happening next Speaking week. of Russell Moore, I want to just throw this in there real quick. Evangelicals for Life, uh, you need to check that out. If you're interested in a uh, an event in D.C. at the beginning of next year, Evangelicals for Life, it's a big event that ERLC is kind of working with. I'll put a link in the, the podcast about that. Had an opportunity this week. Uh, couldn't make it work to try to uh, interview Dr. Moore about that. I'm going to try to work that out. I'm working with uh, his communication staff over there trying to get an interview about that so we can hear more about that here on the podcast. If nothing else, I'll get somebody else on there 
uh, from ERLC, and we'll we'll talk about that kind of in the future. So, all right. November is upon us. We will see you next week here on SBC This Week. Any final thoughts, Amy? Nope, I'm good. See you next week.